This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Gary Montana Robert is a multi-award winning stuntman and stunt coordinator who has worked on more than 700 TV shows and films, from Chips and the Dukes of Hazard to Forrest Gump, Platoon, Underworld, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, and Fast and Furious. Gary began his career when he was just a teenager, and some of his early assignments had him doubling for actors like Robert Urich and Eric Estrada. Gary's been set on fire. He's been struck by moving vehicles. He's flipped cars and jumped over other vehicles while on a motorcycle. Gary is engaged in barroom brawls. He's jumped out of multi-story buildings and for many years held the high fall record. Gary is a three-time International Stunt Society Award winner and has been recognized with many other stunt driving and stunt coordinator awards. He has trained others in his own studio. And the list of Hollywood stars he's prepped for stunts on screen reads like a who's who of the film industry. That list of A-listers includes Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx, Vin Diesel, Megan Fox, Jack Black, and Charlie Sheen. In a career spanning 35 years, Gary has broken nearly every bone in his body, and he's suffered more than one concussion. The end result of working so long in the profession he so loves is seizures. But now, a special five-year-old friend who came into Gary's life when he was just a pup provides ample warning when a seizure is about to hit. That friend is a beautiful, blue-eyed Alaskan timber wolf named Sage, who is not only a trained service wolf, but also a wolf actor and model. In this episode, we'll hear from Gary Montana Robert about life in stunt work and life with his dearly loved service wolf, Sage. You're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly, and I am your host, Donna Haleson. So, please, sit, stay. We'll be right back with Gary Montana Robert after these messages. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly on the Pet Life Radio Network. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and joining us from his ranch on the California coast is Gary Montana Robert. Hi, Gary. Thanks for being with us today. Well, good morning, and thank you very much for having Sage and I. We're quite excited. Wonderful. Well, Gary, you've had quite a run of a life, and to try to get some kind of hold on that, I wonder if we might just begin at the beginning. I understand that you grew up in Long Beach, California, and that you were introduced to movie making at an early age by your dad. So would you tell us a bit about those early years? How did you get into this life that you have led? Well, thank you for your interest. And I guess in short, and I will tell the story, is I really couldn't sing or dance, you know? So falling down just seemed like a, a pretty good thing for a career for someone like me, but uh Yeah, I grew up in Long Beach, and, you know, at that time, we're talking the 70s, it was really a a haven. It was the Hollywood of its time, really. We had shows such as The Bionic Man with B Majors, of course, Starsky and Hutch, Emergency, SWAT. Now I'm really kind of aging myself a little bit. But uh, there were big shows at the time, and they were all filmed right there in downtown Long Beach. And uh, growing up in elementary school... 
my dad, you know, used to constantly come to class and take me out of school. <laughs> I don't remember the excuses, but I know he had plenty to get me out. And, uh, you know, we would just go downtown and he would have me uh, meet some of these stars to somehow he had a way with them. And, you know, I just got a real early glimpse at uh, TV and movie making at a young age constantly. And that kind of, I, I think, set the bug for me. And uh, it went on for a few years, actually. And uh, really how it all began, though, after taking an interest, I knew nothing about my stunt career to come. I didn't even know what a stuntman was other than Evil Knievel, to be honest with you. But I met a gentleman by the name of Dar Robinson. Uh, now, he passed away in the 80s on a film. Uh, but he became my mentor. You know, I basically grew up with two brothers. My parents divorced early on, so I was kind of alone at that time as a young teen in Long Beach. And I uh, met Dar on a set and uh, just kind of took me under his wing and went from there. All right. So how old were you when you got your first job and how did you train for the work? I was 16 years old. And, uh, you know, I just was on a set one day watching, not knowing what they were really doing. This was in Long Beach. And they introduced himself, took me under his wing. And for the next couple of weeks after school, I would race downtown to help him out, carrying duffel bags and little things. He uh, just kind of took to me. And uh, with passing time, he got uh, to my mother and uh, asked if I can spend some time on the weekends at his place on the Hollywood Hills, a nice ranch he had. And uh, basically, you know what, on the weekends, he would just teach me how to fall and tumble and real basic stuff. He took an interest in me and saw my abilities, I guess, physically and uh, just kind of gave me all the tools I needed. And when I was about 17, I really started working. I actually left high school. I got a 10th grade education because I wanted to pursue this. And about 17 years old, I got my first big break on a, a major film uh, being shot outside Santa Barbara, California, called Stunts, actually, ironically. And then a big break came for me at about uh, almost 19, I guess it was, on a little-known show. Well, not so little, I guess. It was called Chips, starring Eric Estrada. And, uh, well, I ended up being a, one of the stunt doubles for Eric on the show, doing some of the motorcycle riding and high-speed stuff. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. Just uh, never stopped, and I guess to this day it still does, and it's still in my blood. Can you take us through your years as a stuntman and stunt coordinator, and uh, what, what other shows, what other films uh, did you work on over the years? Okay, Sure. Well, again, starting off as a young stuntman, I turned out to be kind of a phenom at the time. Just really excelled at it at a young age. I guess I can say, and not boasting or bragging, but I was envy of a lot of people, even to this day, that I meet uh, my age or give or take, uh, because I happen to have been blessed to have worked on all the major shows at the time. Everything from Knight Rider, The Dukes of Hazard, The A-Team, Airwolf, Street Hawk, Cardcastle, McCormick, Mash, you name it. I just paved uh, the pavement with all the major shows at the time. And then we did some Steven Seagal movies, some major films at the time, from Platoon to just about every major film that was coming up at the time uh, we were involved in. I was just doing stunt work as a stuntman. I uh, started stunt doubling at uh, later years regularly for some major actors. But I did everything from car work, uh, crashes, jumps, spins, horse work, uh, westerns, medieval, you name it, we've done it. And as I gained that experience and I learned, uh, you transition into stunt coordinating, where you actually set up and design, hire the stunt guys, and figure out how to do these complex things that you see on a script. Now, that comes with years of knowledge and experience, like any trade or profession. You work your way up to that. And it just kind of snowballed into so many other opportunities, from designing action sequences to specialized props to vehicles uh, for stunt work. But stunt coordinating certainly has its challenges and doesn't come without a lot of stress and headaches. Though I will say, going on about 35-plus years now in the industry, I can honestly say I've never really worked a day in my life. Uh, how can you when you're given the opportunity to travel around the world and play with all these expensive toys and uh, get paid for it? So it's quite an experience, quite an opportunity for someone uh, with no education and, and really no um, direction from a, from a father uh, at a teenage year. Uh, I basically was like running off with the circus. You know, and uh, 
enjoying life and learning all the fun things that went with it. So it was a great time and it led to a great career. I thought it was interesting that you happened to have your photograph taken when you were probably a teen, I would guess, with a couple of actors, Lee Marvin and Robert Urich, and then you went on to stunt double for both of them. Is that true? Well, yeah, this is what's really uh, funny, you know, uh, and interesting to me. Again, it's just been the most colorful life uh, anyone could ever imagine. Um, but yeah, you know, Robert Bob, as I was allowed to call him as I got to know him, was a fantastic, fantastic, giving, loving man. Unfortunately, we lost him years back. But, you know, he was one of the stars on an old uh, series called SWAT, a lot of the listeners may recall. And, uh, you know, he played one of the SWAT team members. And I remember being taken out of school, because that was my favorite show at the time, of course. And my dad took me downtown Long Beach, and they were filming. And I actually have pictures with all these cast, Steve Forrest and, and um, Bob Urich, and, and forgive me, but I can't recall the other actors' names. But I have pictures with all of them as a young teen. You know, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I was, I guess, 14, 13 maybe at the time, give or take. And uh, years later, you know, I get a call from some producers that were filming the show uh, starring uh, Bob Urich and uh, wanted me to stunt double for him. And, uh, well, you know, the real funny uh, part of the story is when I got to the set, I got to meet him. Of course, he didn't recognize me right off the bat. I'm, I'm a grown, younger adult male. And uh, my name always stood out, uh, Gary Montana Robert or Gary Robert. And uh, so one, one day when I introduced myself on the set there, we were having lunch. And, yeah, I'm going to be a stunt double sort of thing. And we got to know each other. You kind of want to hang around with those you're doubling so you can learn some of their uh, mannerisms and stuff. And he's just a great, fun guy. And he says, you know, you really look familiar. I don't know if it's just your name or what. And I know you're a stunt guy now in the business, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, a couple of days later, I went back to the set with the photo album. I said, hey, uh, Bob, I'll show you something. So I opened this photo album, and there was all these pictures. Boy, he was just like just that awe seeing these old pictures of him. You know, oh, my God, look at how young I am. So he's looking at this one picture of a scrawny kid with high water pants. That'd be me. And uh, he's looking at it. He's looking at me. He's looking at the picture. And he says, wait a minute. Is that you? I said, yeah, it is. You know? So here I am, the young kid in this photo. And years later, I'm in his shadows, his stunt bubble. Well, I got the same story for Lee Majors, uh, Lee Marvin on uh, a couple of uh, feature films they worked on. And uh, a number of other actors. So it was just quite an amazing coincidence of, of life and being at the right place at the wrong time, I guess. But yeah, it, uh, it was quite interesting how that worked out. So it's quite fun and quite exciting. Could you share some of the, maybe the highlights or lowlights, maybe, some of the signature scenes in which you were featured? Well, you know, gosh, to pick one, it would be nearly impossible. I've always said, and I'm always asked, what's the greatest thing you've ever done? What's the most exciting stunt you've ever done? And I always come back with the next one, you know, whatever that may be. I think the days with Knight Rider and the Dukes of Hazard, of course, because everybody uh, thinks about those shows, cars flying through the air, uh, were some of the more uh, memorable, for sure, working on films such as Platoon uh, back in the, uh, in the early part of my career. Huge opportunity, seeing the transition from what movies were like to what they are today. You know, there's just so many highlights. And I think one of the most important things for me that Dar instilled in me at a young age, and I'll share with you, is I was asked one time uh, when I was young with Dart, well, you know what we do? We're stuntmen. I'm a stuntman. So you know what that is? Evil can evil, I guess? Well, not really. Uh, You know, there's a lot of definitions, and one is to risk their their lives and and, uh, danger and all that. But really, uh, the job of a stuntman is really to save a life, and that's that actor or actors that you may be doubling for or performing for. And so to me, that was a highlight, knowing I'm doing something so somebody else can get home safe. Now, you know, I'm not a hero. There's nothing really noble about that. That's the job, but I believed in it, and I still do. So I think for me, the greatest highlight is knowing, because uh, I've never had kids. Uh, I was married for a short time. So I really never had that family. So being able to see somebody else get home to theirs at the end of the day, I may not have walked away from a crash that went wrong, and many have gone wrong in my career. 
I've been in a couple of comas and some serious injuries. And I look at it as that could have been somebody else, better me. So I think the highlights really, Donna, are just knowing I did something um, not to bring some excitement and thrills to the screen, uh, really, but, uh, you know, to save, to save an actor or actors, you know. And to me, that was very important because that's what Dar instilled in me. And how unfortunate that believing in just that uh, is what took his life, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great career. It's so many highlights, so many shows, so many actors. I've got to meet Jackie Gleason, the Red Fox, you know. The list goes on and on. So, you know, I just couldn't pick out one in particular. My stunts uh, from world record high falls of 220 feet, you know, 20 plus stories on fire to uh, jumping cars over semi trucks and through semi trucks. You know, even my near fatal accidents, I guess, were, well, I hate to say it's the kind of cool highlights, you know. So there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of great memories. And the heartaches are uh, the fact that we do lose loved ones and uh, that was dear to us in this business. And uh, boy, I've been around that, unfortunately. We had uh, a lot of mishaps and dark, of course, being the most tragic in my career, uh, being my mentor and a father figure to me. But I've lost a lot of dear, dear friends in this industry, and them are the, them are the tough times. You know, but uh, if you're true to this profession and you believe in it, it doesn't change your mind. And if you have faith in the man upstairs, which I do, I never worry about that. We just go on and appreciate the next day. What happened to Dar? Well, you know, there's a number of things. And and sadly, I was to be on the set in a film in Arizona. The film went through several different titles, and I believe lastly it was called Cyclone, I believe. Not a huge, high-budget film. Now, Dar was one of these spectacular stunt guys that TV specials were made of. This guy was a legend. Uh, he did the most amazing things, a true showman above anything else. And this movie wasn't one of the highest or the biggest films he's ever done, but nonetheless, he was on it. And, uh, you know, he was doing some speed runs on a motorcycle really wasn't part of a stunt scene at the moment. And again, I was to be there, but I was on another set filming on another project. And, you know, he cornered a little bit too fast at high speed on the motorcycle. And uh, they were doing this basically for camera tests, running some tests with a camera. So sadly, it wasn't really part of anything in particular. So it's kind of a needless accident. And that's exactly what it was. Lost control of the bike, went over an embankment, flew through the air 50, 60 feet below, and landed in some rocks and, you know, suffered some major internal injuries. It was just a very tragic accident. Uh, Something like that would have never been foreseen by him because this is a man that jumped from one airplane to another without a parachute, leaped over a 1,000 feet with a cable off the tower, uh, one of the world's largest towers. Uh, This guy just did some amazing stuff. And for something this simple to come and bite you and get you, uh, that's the scary part, and that's what we really, a lot of times, underestimate. It's the easy, simple things that'll get you, you know. And in this case, it really was. And it's been that way in my accidents, too, for that matter, you know. Some of the things you take for granted that you can do pretty easily turn out to be the most dangerous things. So for him, it was just a really, really sad, bad day at the office. It struck all of us very hard because he was a legend of stunt guys. Uh, he's just done it all. So it was just a very sad accident, and it really didn't need to happen, but it did. And it was something that struck a chord with me. It allowed me to tighten the belt a little tighter and uh, buckle down on how we did things. And when I got to the point of coordinating, I always used ours of, uh, accident as an example of what we need to prepare for. And that's the simplest things. You know, because that's what's going to get you. So mm-hmm. it was just a really unfortunate accident, mm-hmm. and that's all it was. You know, there was nothing that could have been done differently okay. or changed. Well, now, all totaled, you've appeared in more than 700 films and TV shows. Is that right? Yeah, that's quite amazing in itself. Uh, combined from the biggest films, you know, to date, to smaller films, to independent films, uh, but yeah, I've had 700 total uh, films, and combined, I've probably wrecked over 3,500 cars, and I don't know how many bikes <laughs> I've crashed, motorcycles, yeah, so 
funny thing is, you know, when I'm driving on the, on the road and there's a car that cuts in front of me or something, I always say to myself, this is what I do for a living. And if I see an accident, you know, I say, well, I've been involved in over a couple thousand, just never in by accident. You know, mine are all on purpose. <laughs> so Yeah, you did this over 34 years? 35 years now. Yeah. Uh, actually started training. Years. Actually worked and started training at about just before I was 16 years old. I started doing live shows, mm-hmm. of course, with Dar and small projects, little independent things. My very first gig actually came, I believe, let's see, 1977 or 1978 on a TV series, which again was kind of a hit at the time, called BJ and the Bear. Greg Evigan traveling the country <laughs> right. in my truck with Little Monkey. And that was my mm-hmm. first really TV break. I uh, just did a couple small stunts in there. So, uh, and you know, I've never looked back. It's uh, as much as I've tried, I try to occasionally. <laughs> Some of the memories are a little painful. But uh, yeah, 35 mm-hmm. years, 700 films. Could you mention some of the films on which you've uh, worked as well? As far as films, we've done everything from... Uh, Hardy Davis and the Marble Man, Good Guys Wear Black, Chuck Norris, done the Mission Impossible movies, Transformer, Fast and Furious, Tears of the Sun, Black Hawk Down, you know, the list goes on and on, Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan, Tropic Thunder, which is everybody's favorite, it seems, I talked to, you know. And again, we we have just uh, been able to work with some of Hollywood's uh, biggest actors and actresses, and uh, as I got the experience, I was a coordinator and trainer prepping them for movies, teaching them to do their stunts. So, yeah, you know, we uh, we definitely managed to uh, carve a niche for ourselves, not just in stunts, but uh, as technical advisors for military and action scenes and training the, the actors and actresses uh, to do their roles. And we've done quite a bit. You've mentioned really how how dangerous the work has been, and I imagine that this work has, this job has had to have been punishing on your body. You know, in an earlier conversation you and I had, you noted the number of broken bones that you've suffered over yeah. the years, and can you tell us something about those injuries? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I remember them like they were yesterday, <laughs> but... Uh... Yeah, you know, I have had so many injuries, but, you know, it's not because we're clumsy by no means. It's the nature of the work. You know, it's like a football player or a race car driver, you know, or a bull rider, which I've done that, too. You know, it's it's not a matter of if, but when it's going to happen. You know, you can't race cars and not crash. You can't play football and not get hurt. You can't do stunts and not get hurt. And in the process, I have broke my back three times, uh, my neck once. I've been in three comas, the longest 42 days. I've had 40-plus broken bones, uh, many of them re-breaks, uh, compound fractures. I've had uh, a little over three dozen concussions, nearly 10-plus open skull fractures where my skull is actually cracked. Yeah, and you know what? It just is part of the job, and it didn't scare me off. In fact, I can honestly say I remember being younger and a little older where we would have a cast on an arm or a leg, and we'd actually saw it off and wrap it up with ace bandages and duct tape and go right back to work. It is very brutal and very punishing. You know, and it's not, again, it's not because, you know, we're clumsy or we don't know what we're doing. It happens, you know. You look at some of the older shows. Dukes of Hazard, as an example, a Night Rider. You know, these shows in the 80s were pretty primitive. Our cars weren't like anything like today. We didn't have all this but a roll cage and a simple harness system. Now these cars are built to withstand NASCAR punishment, you know? So uh, it was pretty brutal at mm-hmm. the time. When you crashed a motorcycle, there was no CGI. You really crashed a motorcycle, you know? And I've crashed bikes into cars doing 90 miles an hour and flew over the hood and hit the freeway. You know, tumble down the asphalt. And again, that's just right. part of the job. You know, if you're going to do this kind of work, you better right. be ready to pay the price. Well, today you suffer from seizures, and I'm wondering if those seizures are the end result of a specific incident or an accident. Well, yeah. You know, sadly, you know, there are some long term effects that can catch up with one that you don't really think about and that they don't tell you, they being the doctors in time, what medication can do to your organs and your bodies. You know, uh, you think you're indestructible, and nobody really tells you or cautions you other than arthritis. You know, you're going to have 
Well, yeah, unfortunately, my career was blossoming pretty good, even as a mature veteran. But health issues snuck up on us, and uh, a few years ago, uh, I had a brain aneurysm. I uh, went undetected, a clot basically that went undetected for quite a while. And it was definitely due, uh, looking back now, and, and uh, professionals, the medical professionals saying, yeah, this is, you know, you can't have as many concussions as you had and not suffer something, you know. Like a boxer, you can't get in the head and not expect something over the years. Well, I did have one, an aneurysm, and, uh, well, it left me basically in a stroke position, not able to talk or walk for quite some time. Quite scary, actually. Very heartbreaking to me uh, because I was mentally aware of what was going on and to look back at what I did for all these years. And the punishment finally caught up with me. So, you know, after I recovered from it and I uh, was walking and talking a bit better and slower but getting back to normal, I started trying to get back into the work. It didn't sway me. It didn't... Uh, deter me. It just made me stronger. But it did leave me with seizures starting to develop and come on, which took me to my next adventure and highlight of my life, really. You know, sad as it was and as painful, it led to probably the best part of my life to this day. You know, so, uh, yeah, it uh, it has its moments. And, and again, it's one of those things I would, I would say to anybody getting into this. And I ran a very successful sun school and I tell the students, you know, this is what you got to be prepared for. This is, you know, if you're going to get into this profession, know what you're getting into because this is what can happen. So uh, my career injuries definitely, without a doubt, played uh, a major role in uh, what I'm suffering today. So um, you just got to accept it and deal with it. And now I have help with that, with a very special friend. Well, and uh, as you say, there is a special friend who has come into your life, and that friend is named Sage. And in the uh, second segment of our program, I'd like to focus on that relationship. Let's now take a break, and when we return, we'll turn our attention to Sage, wolf actor and service wolf. So, folks, please sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. Okay, so Sage Timberwolf, would you take us through his history and tell us how he came into your life? He's a beautiful, beautiful wolf, and I wonder if you might describe him for us as well and tell us something about his nature and how old he was when you met, and perhaps you can uh, give us a sense of the connection that you share. Well, thank you. There is no doubt Sage is very special, and gosh, how do you describe crazy perfection, I guess, but uh, I can Sage is an actual Alaskan timber wolf. His story was quite sad, actually, quite heartbreaking to some, but turned out to be an incredible journey for him as much as me. Sage was 13 weeks when I found him, when I I got to meet him. And Sage was actually in a sanctuary, born himself with uh, kidney and liver uh, issues as a pup and therefore his pack rejected him, uh, which they would do in the wild. Now, I've been around wild animals all my life, including wolves. I worked with them in films and bison and lions and tigers and bears and all that stuff. I've been attacked by them many times in films, so I knew just how challenging it, it would be and they could be. And uh, a lot about the wolves, and I became a bit more of an expert after taking them on. 
But uh, in short, really, I had uh, some contacts in Alaska that uh, gave me a call one day and said, hey, we have a basically an orphan pup here. It was rejected by its pack, and we can't reintroduce them. This is just not what they do, you know. We are not in a position to raise them. And sadly, most sanctuaries aren't, especially when uh, pups are born with illnesses because of the expense that goes along with them, and they're just not financially prepared for that challenge. So I hate saying this, but unfortunately, a lot of them have to be put down. And uh, Sassy Sage was one of those. And so I got word of it. I happen to have permits and license and everything else that was required to have such a creature just because I could, and I did have those, and uh, went to go see him. And oh my gosh, if you were to look at his Facebook photos and his new website coming up and see his pup pictures, how can you deny, you know? So um, basically, I went and saw and met him, saw his dad, who was, oh my gosh, 170 plus pounds of a wolf, (laughs) quite big. And here was little Sage, you know. Well, basically, uh, Donna and listeners, we uh, decided I decided to take him on and uh, bring him back at a cost of about two hundred fifty thousand dollars just first year of own money to rehab him. And this is uh, why places just aren't equipped to do it. Uh, it is a cost. Not really knowing, I just didn't have any kids, no family, saved my money, had a great life, great career. I could do it. So why not? The good Lord gave me the abilities care for this uh, animal, I thought, so I did. And uh, it was a struggle, you know, this little poor wolf who was always going to be underweight and, and under everything, misunderstood. And uh, I took him on and got him as healthy as we can with some experts. And uh, that's pretty much how we kind of met. But, you know, that first year was such an amazing bond. I've been around wolves and they really are, you know, geared to attack. And so I had to establish that with him. I could see all the wolf instincts kicking in. But yet, you know, he wasn't that wolf that he should have been. And I felt really bad. But the options, you know, were for him not to exist. So I had to do what I could to, to give him a, a normal life, but yet a wolf life. I had to feed him and treat him like a wolf, but yet treat him like my best friend. And, uh, boy, he really appreciated because he just became so connected to me. It's just been incredible. A lot of experts can't even explain the connection we have. There's just something there. So, uh, you know, all that love and care and attention and allowing him to be himself really paid off, uh, which led him to be something very special for me that he was never meant to be. It's interesting that in some ways when, uh, when the two of you met, you were both a bit broken, right? Yeah, you know, and that's part of the fun story and the sad story to people, you know. I was already, uh, you know, busted up and, and physically hurt. I have my own other health issues, too, that I'm, uh, I've been dealing with, and it's actually come back to haunt me again, we just discovered. So I've had my shares. I was already getting sick, didn't, didn't uh, you know, uh, have the full effects of some of my injuries, but I was already feeling it. So basically on my own. I kind of retired a little bit from the business. So when I met up with Sage, I was the lone wolf and he was a lone wolf. He was ill, I was ill. (laughs) And uh, we kind of just made this amazing bond and traveled the country together. And my goodness, he can feel the love and I could too. And uh, we basically saved each other. And that's really the story in itself. In itself is how we just saved each other. Well, you took him in and you helped him heal. And in return, he has done the same for you. He eventually was trained to serve as an assistance wolf or as a service wolf. Can you tell us something about that, how that all came to be and uh, what that's meant for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, that was quite amazing. It was never meant to be this way. Number one, he's a wild animal. Uh, First and foremost, I want to make that very clear. He is not domesticated. I'm always asked, let me back up real quick here. Always ask, oh my gosh, because he has stands everywhere and he stops traffic wherever we go and we go to a lot of places. Well, how did you domesticate this guy, this wolf? Well, first of all, he is not domesticated. He is a wild wolf. The difference is he taught me how to live in his world. He domesticated me how he lives and what his needs are. That's the most important part I've learned to most, if not all, wild exotic animals or wildlife. Got to let them set the pace. And if they're going to let you in, they're going to let you in. If not, that's just the way it's going to be. Well, he uh, made it very easy to bond with. 
He made it very easy for me to understand his needs. So when my needs became apparent to him, he knew that right away. So what happened is I had him after my uh, prior and after my uh, major head injury uh, developed and the seizure started. And uh, it was made very clear by uh, doctors that you know, you're going to need some help, Gary. Again, I don't have any family really now or kids and never been around anybody. And it was made clear that you're going to be having these seizures, Gary. You know, you're healthy in every other sense for the most part. But, you know, there are animals that are trained for this. They have seen eye dogs, you know, they got companion animals and, and they have dogs, you know, canines that detect seizures. And this is, you're a great candidate for it. And that was fine and dandy, but I had this crazy idea. I said, well, that's kind of neat, but. I have a wolf. Can we? Is there any way I can get some help in getting this wolf trained? And of course, jaws dropped. What? No, can't do that. So, well, can't is a four-letter word, a bad word to us. So uh, that just inspired me more to push a little harder. And I was determined if a canine can do this, and I started doing some homework on facilities that, that teach and, and work with service animals for patients and um, what what makes them special and what do they do and how they train them. And I was like, well, it's a wolf's a canine. All dogs come from canine, from the wolves anyway. They're all, you know, I don't get it. Well, for most people, it was a liability issue. They equated this to taking a bear or a lion somewhere, you know. Uh, it just they wouldn't do it. So that kind of pumped me even more. Now, I do know and I did know that wolves' sense of smell are 10 times greater than a typical canine. Their senses are so much greater in every respect. So I just knew there had to be a way to do this. And, uh, well, months went by of trying to have contacted facilities throughout the United States, and they were all interested, but all said, no, this is just not going to happen. Even animal trainers in the film industry are like, you can't take a wolf and do anything like that. You can't even get them to, you know, do what we want them to do for films all the time or half the time, let alone medical services. Well... Again, we tried and with no success. But Sage was always really clingy to me, so I knew he, he was, there was something special. I got sick a few times, and surprisingly, and not so surprisingly, he was right there and alerting me in different ways. Well, we just needed a little bit of push, and about seven months or so later, we got that push from a call from Europe. Somebody that heard about us. Uh, through the pipeline, through the medical fields, I guess, and uh, said, hey, you know, we believe we could help you. We work with animals here, and I have worked with uh, service animals and some exotic animals, and uh, I think we might be able to do something for you. Well, I have to say, you know, European medicine's pretty advanced, even in the canine and the animal world. They're just more open to things, I've learned. So we spent nine months overseas, and basically, Sage got an education of what it's like to be a service animal for a seizure patient. Uh, he learned and worked with others and me. And uh, boy, it was a struggle, but it was so easy at the same time. And in short, you know, he was able to really start picking up on me and my seizures. Their sense of smell is so great, and that's what they pick up on from a, a patient like me, is your body, your endorphins change, everything changes, I've learned all this, and uh, they can really pick up on that, and Sage was really keen on that, he was just amazing with it. So we came there, we got all the certificates uh, to show that he is very capable and very legal to, to own and to have, uh, which is very rare but also that he's very capable in the professional medical field to assist me. So he is licensed and documented in all the fun stuff and all the cool things he needs and his own little vest, which he's so proud to put on. Because when he wears that, he knows he's working quite cool. But now he's able to detect my seizures about up to 20 minutes prior to them happening, give or take a minute or two. And it's quite amazing because he's done that a few times already and most recently, which was amazing on our way back from Arizona recently. So he turned out to be very rare in a number of ways. So we can't find another real wild exotic animal that can do this that we know of and we've been around now. And uh, his eyes, number one, uh, makes separates him from other wolves. Turns out uh, he is so special, and only the good Lord above, I believe, is the answer to that. But uh, he is unique and very kind and loving 
Wolves are so misunderstood, and that's the blessing of having this special mm-hmm. wolf is sharing with yes. people. It's been amazing. Well, wolves are such maligned creatures, and everything from ancient fairy tales to some of the movies today just depict them as these dangerous predators. And the very idea of training and keeping a service wolf is challenged by probably a lot of people, I would guess. And would you want to address that controversy? And and maybe just reiterate, I guess, why Sage was such a good candidate for this work? Uh, yeah, uh, and you're right. There is a lot of controversy. In fact, it's just funny. Just the other day, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, we were at a market, and of course, we stopped traffic wherever we go, and some lady overheard me telling another that this was a wolf, because we always have to identify him as, as such, and he has that on his vest. And the response was, why would you do that to a wolf? And, well, give me a second, and, you know, she thought it was a husky malmute mix or whatever, and my response is, why would you do that to a canine, you know? That's the worst thing you want to do in my book is is to uh, have a hybrid, and I know them too well. But, uh, you know, Sage was one in a million. There's no doubt. There's just no one that's going to convince me otherwise. I did not choose this life for him, really. You know, it happened. I think anybody that was in a position financially or otherwise to see Sage as he was as a pup and that had any compassion for an animal and my... uh, the love of my life, Stacy here and I uh, just love animals. We got a house full of all kinds of animals. You couldn't deny this this, this animal, no matter what. You were going to do whatever it was going to take. And uh, knowing about the wolves, I knew that they can only be trained to a certain extent, if at all. You know, they're escape artists. They, if not pack animals, they're lone wolves. Hence the name. They want to do their own thing. Well, Sage never expressed that. You know, as he was growing up. And again, I just could not see something so majestic being being put down. So uh, he had all the right makings. I knew wolves had the intelligence. They are not, as you just uh, mentioned, they are not, you know, like what they're portrayed. They're not the big bad wolves. How many times have we heard of about a, of a bear attack, okay? Bison attack at the national parks. Mm-hmm. Bobcats, lions, pit bulls, German shepherds, poodles. You're most likely going to be bit by a fool in the park than a wolf in the woods. I assure you, guarantee you that. You do not hear of that. They're just so misunderstood. They're beautiful, majestic, private creatures that just want to be left alone. They hunt for survival and for their family. In a way, is that what we do? So they're no different. I try to educate people in that, you know. Again, uh, wolves have that sense of ability. They are a pack animal. They're not like coyotes and and, and uh, other related animals. They are really geared to family. For the most part, they want to be together. So Sage took to me as that, and I took to him as that. So we had that bond early on. That made the perfect candidate for a companion for me. Medically, he just picked up on my needs with his sense uh, of incredible smell. Now, I don't exploit him. I don't do anything with him in a negative way. Entertainment stuff just happened to be, uh, and it was out of necessity in some some cases, being honest. But uh, I've learned having him and having him in public was a great way to bring education and awareness to the wolves. So it turned out Sage has been yeah. an ambassador unofficially and a great one at that. He has every attribute that makes him perfect candidate. When you see him in public, he is just so docile and calm and lays at the table, under the table at restaurants, and, you know, he just knows what he needs to do. I care for him. I love him, you know, like like you can only imagine, uh, and in turn, he returns us. But again, people just don't understand. They think it's it's absolutely wrong. He should be in a cage. He should be in a sanctuary. You, you can't. It's just not going to happen. That's not a life and never was for him. Again, I really didn't pick this destination right. for us. It just kind of happened, and we went with it. <laughs> and now we share it. Well, now Sage Sage has added wolf actor and model as well to his resume. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, quite funny in itself. Now, I knew I had somebody very special. You know, the time we spent on the road from Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, this is probably the most traveled wolf in the world, and around the world for that matter, of course. You know, recovering a little bit, I was traveling, I kind of retired, we were leaving Colorado, and uh, 
I still had all my contacts in the movie business. I directed some films on my own studio a lot. I've done so much where I had so many contacts and, and uh, people knew I was retiring and, and knew Sage and I and just taken by our story. I wanted to help. So, you know, a lot of producers and directors of mine cast would come up and say, hey, you know what? I know you got this wolf. You know, I know somebody that needs a wolf in a shoot. Is your wolf character? No, he's really not. But I figured, you know what, if this guy could learn, you know, to save me, <laughs> you know, and be the companion that he has turned out to be at that point, I just bet he'll be very trainable, you know, if I can use that word. And sure enough, I started working with him. I worked around animals, as I said, especially canine handlers and trainers for films and all that. Basically, take the same concepts you would a canine, just multiply it times 20 times greater, and patience, and it works. So he got his first gig, actually, a small independent film. Unfortunately, unfortunately, he got to play the big bad wolf, which is pretty easy for him. You know, he looks beautiful. But yeah, I started working with him, and I started doing some small features, a couple of small TV things, some commercials. He's really suited for print work, so he does a lot of modeling. Uh, he's just absolutely stunning, and uh, it's funny. Once you get in front of a camera, a camera, he poses. He really knows the cue. I got him to learn certain commands and certain words. He has a vocabulary of about 100 words. He understands perfectly. So, yeah, he is quite the actor and model, spokesperson. Uh, I think <laughs> a spokeswolf for his kind. Stacy, the beautiful love of my life now, and his new mommy, and she owns uh, two feed stores, animal pet stores here in California. So Sage is becoming quite the quite the door greeter there and special events. And we just love showing him and sharing him. So he's done quite well. And honestly, I mentioned earlier out of necessity, and I don't mean it in any disrespectful way towards Sage or, or, or what we do. But, you know, having him does come with an expense. There is no doubt. This is not the cozy, warm, fuzzy life. It is a, a tough life, a beautiful life. But Sage has ongoing medical needs, as do I. Uh, there's no doubt. I was just diagnosed with something even more serious uh, that we have to deal with now, and that's okay. We will. But uh, having Sage work a little bit and me work as his handler and trainer, you know, has allowed us to make life a little bit easier for our bills, his medical, because they are ongoing. Sage has ongoing kidney and liver disease, and unfortunately his life will be cut a little bit shorter than it could be uh, living a life like this. So we're able to uh, offset some of those expenses by some of his, his opportunities he gets. And at the same time, it allows me to share him with others. So it's a win-win for everybody. But uh, he does right. seem to enjoy How, how old is Sage? He is going on five years old. Still quite young. Yes, he is. And in the wild, actually, that could be the extent of their life. Uh, they are prone to diseases, injuries. They don't have a whole lot of predators in the wild, but they do have their share. And most of them succumb to injuries that don't heal and infections and things like that, uh, illnesses of different sorts. So they do have a very short life in the wild for the most part. In captivity, sanctuary, zoos, boy, they can 15, 16, 17 years, maybe just a slight bit longer. They can have a quite a, a good life if, if they're uh, taken care of. But now, in Sage's case, again, being with kidney and liver, it has stunted his development and his growth like it would uh, an actual person. So he's a fraction of the size he would be and the weight he should be. But we manage it quite well with good diet, a uh, good balance of real meat, real food, as he would in the wild, to lots of good exercise, to good living, to medical treatment. He has ongoing so uh, it definitely is a challenge. And, you know, when he's there at the vet, I'm right there with him day and night because he has to spend days in there. And I've been going for some recent treatments for my illness, my latest, and uh, he's right in the hospital with me. So it's kind of a neat, sad story, but a neat story. It's really, really sweet. Well, you know, you seem very much the perfectly matched pair, and especially being able to understand and appreciate in each other the pains and the just the challenges, the physical challenges that you both have. 
and uh, and yet you've really managed to connect it seems on such a very very deep level and it's um it's inspiring to hear that story and i think it's it's such an important story especially today when when wolves have been so maligned and when they face so many challenges in the wild it's so wonderful to be able to hear a story of how how a wolf can be appreciated and left to be a wolf while at the same time being one who can come alongside of a human being and make such an extraordinary difference in his life as well. I wonder, as we uh, close out our time together, if there's anything else that you want to be certain to mention? Well, you know, I can, boy, I love this, though, and this opportunity to share with you and the listeners about Sage, uh, more so in my own career. But, you know, I just want people to really understand that what we do now, Sage and I, is for everyone else, and we've learned that. We have had people cry that meet us, that meet Sage, those in wheelchairs, the elderly kids, men even. Sage is so powerful. The wolf is a very powerful healing creature. It's not a tool by no means. He's a creature, but he's a beautiful gift. And, you know, we're constantly offered money, you know, by people. Let me help you. What You know, and all I ask, share a smile. Because look what it did for you, sir. Look what it did for you, ma'am. Look what it did for your child in that wheelchair, you know. Share a smile. And that's what Sage does. He can actually smile on command. <laughs> so he shares a smile. So the only thing I would leave anybody with, be kind to each other. There's a lot we can learn from our four-legged companions if we let them. And if you're open to the love that they're willing to give you, which a lot of, of animal uh, owners and lovers have experienced, I'm sure your listeners out there, they have seen me through some tough times. This wolf has seen me through my hardest. You know, I'm dealing with bone cancer right now, a form of it, a very difficult time of my life. Heartbreaking some days for me to try to get around, but you know who's beside me smiling? Sage, my wolf. I don't let it slow me down, and I just want everybody else to know that a smile and the love of whatever your animal is can do so much more healing than any medical uh, profession can. And uh, I just want people to know that. Share a smile, and if they want a smile from Sage, go to his Facebook and soon-to-be website, look him up, and uh, you'll have uh, the time of your life. He's got all kinds of things we love to send out, no obligation. We have polygraph pictures, we call them, all kinds of fun stuff. But um, really, we just want people to understand that Sage is happy. This wolf is happy. He is not suffering. I did not take him out of anything whatsoever. I enhanced his life and he enhanced mine, and that's all that matters. So there's some that may not agree, tons more that do. Bottom line is he's happy and healthy and has the best time of his life. He has his own goats, his own horses, other dogs, siblings. (laughs) He's living the life, I assure you, a fantastic life. And hopefully soon, uh, a TV project we're working on. Maybe that's another story for another time. Thank you, Gary, for being with us. You have quite the story to tell, and we're grateful you shared that story with us today. If folks have any questions or comments about this program, I'd invite you to email me at the address noted on my show blog that's found on Pet Life Radio's homepage. And as always, I hope you'll come along next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.